good morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we go to the word? Our Father in heaven, we come to you, Lord God, and ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that you would open up our eyes and hearts to the word implanted, that it might save our souls. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you, Lord, that you have given us this word and you have preserved it over the years that we might have life through it, through your son, Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of the word. Guide us today, Lord God. Help us to make the applications that we need to make for the sake of your kingdom and in your son, Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Well, several years ago, my son Aaron decided, as many others have, that he was going to train to run a marathon. Deep in his heart, he has always been a runner. He always loved it, and he also has had asthma since he was a baby. And so I thought the idea of running a marathon when he first pitched it to me was a little bit dangerous. Yet strangely, his asthma never really seemed to affect his ability to run long distances. Now, secretly, I've always thought that the idea of running for the sake of running was just a little bit crazy. As you may have guessed, I'm not really into running. Oh, I run all the time. Don't get me wrong. I run to the mailbox. I run to the car. I run to, in the grocery store, up and down the aisles, up and down the stairs in my home. I don't mind running, or should I say sprinting. With short bursts of energy and speed don't really bother me. It's the distance thing that gets me. And when I look at the thousands of people lining up for a marathon, these brave, skinny, overachieving, masochistic people, I wonder what it is that actually motivates them to do it. Anyway, my son was going to train for this body-killing event, so I got behind it and I followed his progress. Every week, I touched base with him to see how the training was going. Well, at first, he had a hard time running three miles. But over the course of a few months, he was running 15 and then 18 miles, working his way toward the goal. Everything was going great until about one month before the race. He was doing a 20-mile training run, and at about three miles into it, he got a little pain in his knee. Well, he continued to run on it gingerly, but still pushing himself. And he has since told me that after about 12 miles or so, strange things begin to happen to your body. You begin to feel every little thing that's out of place, and it aggravates the body exponentially. A wrinkle in your sock, for instance, can completely rack you with pain. Anyway, Aaron's knee finally gave out at about the 13-mile mark, and he was completely unable to put weight on it. He couldn't even walk to his car. He had to call his pregnant wife to come and get him. And for the next three weeks before the race, he was unable to run. Not even one mile. It was pretty devastating. It looked like his dream and all of that work, all that time, all that discipline, all that entry fee, seemingly lost. His heart began to sink. Fast forward now three weeks, the date of the race is fast approaching, the entry fee non-refundable at this point, training had long since ceased, Aaron decides he's gonna enter the race anyway. 
He has no delusions of ever being in the top 20 finishers or even in the top 100. He just wants to run the race, to fight the fight, and to simply finish the course. So he enters. Now, unable to attend, my wife and I followed the race via cell phone from home, calling my daughter-in-law Bethany every few miles, check on his progress. But listen to how one writer describes the different phases of such a race like a marathon. My son would definitely corroborate these things. The author says the first phase of such a race might be called the pleasure stage. At this point, running is fun. Your body is loose, your heart is pumping, you are one with the cosmos. The blood is flowing, the head is clear, the lungs are breathing deeply, the birds are singing, the sun is shining, the fish are jumping, the cotton is high, daddy's rich, and mama's good looking. You are functioning like a well-oiled machine. How long this stage lasts depends on the runner's conditioning. For me, it lasts about 12 or 13 feet. For Aaron, it was about 12 or 13 miles. About 12 miles into this 26-mile race, not quite halfway, his knee started to hurt. At about 18 miles, he had to stop and walk a bit every mile or so just to keep going. Well, stage two, the author writes, after the initial rush of pleasure, running becomes drudgery. After drudgery, it becomes effortless and laborious. And if you keep going long enough, you reach the point when the temptation to stop is absolutely overwhelming. Your feet are protesting vigorously. Knives of pain are stabbing through your calves. Your lungs have burning coals at the bottom of them. Runners speak of this experience as hitting the wall. Now to run at this stage, to hit the wall and keep on going is the ultimate test of a runner. Races are won or lost, completed or abandoned at the wall. So at about the 20 mile mark, my son hit the wall and almost gave up. And at that point, the runners had to run past the finish line, up a long hill and around another loop. This was the place of testing. It's at this stage that marathons really become interesting and ugly. This is where hope can be lost. This is where whatever is in your stomach can also be lost. This is where resolve can be lost. This is where your heart and your will can be lost. Aaron said that this was by far the most difficult part of the entire race, the last six miles. This is all so biblically familiar, isn't it? The Apostle Paul, toward the end of his ministry, during his last six miles, so to speak, sitting in a prison, facing who knows what, wrote these words of exhortation to encourage his young protege, Timothy, to endure in the race. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, he writes, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Or as the message renders it, run hard and fast in the faith. Seize the eternal life, the life you were called to, the life you so fervently embraced in the presence of so many witnesses. Then again, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, he says, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill 
your ministry. Again, the author that talks about the marathon stages, he says the start of the race is enjoyable, it's easy. Finishing is hard work. To finish well, well, that's glory. Finishing well is what counts. How will we run the race of life? Will we finish well? The capacity to finish well is what the New Testament writers called endurance or perseverance. It is the virtue by which we become increasingly able to honor commitments that ought to last us a lifetime. It is especially the ability to honor commitments when honoring them becomes very difficult. A wife says to her husband of 50 years as they lie in bed one night, oh, when we were young, you used to hold my hand each night. And so slowly, a little irritably, his hand reaches out until it finds hers. And when we were young, she goes on, you used to snuggle up against me in bed. A little more slowly, her husband's body creaks and, and turns until it is nestling against hers. And when we were young, she says, you used to nibble on my ear. Well, abruptly, the covers are thrown back. The man lurches out of bed. Where are you going, she asks, a little hurt. To get my teeth, he grumbled. Now, to nibble on an ear when you're young and full of romance and bubbling hormones in the room is scented with ode to something or other is one thing. But to still be nibbling on the air when it holds a hearing device and the room is scented with Ben Gay and you have to get up to get your teeth, well, that's something entirely different. At about 22 miles, my son Aaron said, just as he and the other runners around him agonized against the temptation to give in and to give up, People from the surrounding neighborhood had come out of their homes and set up tables with flat soda and pieces of candy in order to help replenish the runner's energy. There were cheers of encouragement and applause as they continued the race with new vigor. Aaron said that that was the critical turning point for him, which birthed a renewed desire to persevere for those last four miles. John Ortberg writes, perseverance is not a panacea. We have limits that the desire to endure alone will not transcend. We will, both, we will be both enabled and limited by a host of factors that perseverance alone will not overcome. But any truly meaningful human accomplishment will require perseverance. Gifts, talents, IQ, these are to some extent beyond our control. Endurance is the gift that we can offer. Spiritual transformation won't happen without it. The writer of Hebrews says this, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Don't lose heart. How do we persevere in the spiritual race and not lose heart? How do you and I continue to keep going in the midst of these long, drawn-out days of semi-isolation and stay-at-home orders? Well, the last time we were together, we looked at four of the seven exhortations in the New Testament gives us to not lose heart. And now, at first glance, they are about as inviting as flat soda on a 26-mile run. But when embraced, they help replenish our strength and resolve. I want to review them and elaborate on a couple again. 
Stay connected was the first one. Stay connected and pray unceasingly. We found that in Luke 18, 1. Jesus said, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, something similar, in verses 6 and 7, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So prayer allows us to wait without worry. The second thing we found last time was in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Stay calibrated and preach boldly. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, the only way to not lose heart in this fight of faith is to stake your claim on God's word and its power to change lives. We don't manipulate it. We, we don't distort it. We simply live out and proclaim the truth and let God do the rest. The rest of the unbelieving world, however, takes a vastly different approach. And Psalm 12 gives us a pretty relevant description of what is taking place in our world today. Psalm 12, verses 2 to 4 says this, All of them lie to one another. They deceive each other with flattery. Silence those flattering tongues, O Lord. Close those boastful mouths that say, With our words we will get what we want. We will say what we wish and no one can stop us. Instead of lay, instead laying out the un unadulterated truth, the unbelieving world uses their words to manipulate rather than communicate. You know what they use, according to Psalm 12? They use empty talk, which is lies. They use smooth talk, which is flattery. They use double talk. They deceive each other. And they use big talk in which they are boastful to get exactly what they want. Now, unfortunately, as the church drifts further away from the authority of the scriptures, the same exact practices become widespread among believers. I, I got to tell you, I am absolutely appalled at some of the things that I am seeing right now on social media posted by people in the church who claim to be followers of Christ. But that is not, underscore not, what we are to be about, according to the Apostle Paul. The message says it like this in 2 Corinthians 4. Since God has so generously let us in on what he's doing, we're not about to throw up our hands and walk off the job just because we run into an occasional hard time. We refuse to wear masks and play games. We don't maneuver and we don't manipulate behind the scenes. We don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. Rather, we keep everything we do and say out in the open, the whole truth on display, so that those who want to see 
can see and judge for themselves in the presence of God. A little earlier, a couple of chapters earlier, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 17, and then again in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, he says, But thanks be to God who made us his captives and leads us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, wherever we go, he uses us to tell others about the Lord and to spread the good news like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a fragrance presented by Christ to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those being saved and by those perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a fearful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such tasks as this? You see, we are not like those hucksters, and there are many of them who preach just to make money. We preach God's message with sincerity and with Christ's authority, and we know that the God who sent us is watching us. We are confident of all of this because of our great trust in God through Christ, and it, it is not that we think that we can do anything of lasting value ourselves, but our only power and success come from God. So we need to stay calibrated right now and preach boldly but truthfully. The third thing we saw last time was stay concentrated. Stay concentrated. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 again, in verses 16 to 18, we find out that we can perceive clearly and hope continually. Hope continually. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Listen, if you and I want to keep our hearts intact, and from giving out, we need to keep a heavenly perspective. And right now, we're being tested in that. And for some, it's incredibly frustrating. It reminds me of the college student that I once read about who was severely tested. A college sophomore sweats all semester in anticipation of the notoriously difficult final exam in his ornithology class. Having made what he regards as the ultimate effort in the class, he is stunned when he walks into the classroom to take the final exam. There is no blue book. There's no multiple choice questions. No text booklet at all. Just 25 pictures on the wall. And they are not photos of birds in resplendent color, but they are pictures of birds' feet. The test is to identify the birds by the feet. This is insane, the student protests. It can't be done. Well, it must be done, says the professor. That is the final. I won't do it, the frustrated student says. I'm walking out. Well, if you walk out, you fail the final. Well, go ahead and fail me, the boy says, heading for the door. Okay, you failed. Tell me your name, the professor demands. The boy rolls up his pants and takes his shoes off to reveal his feet. You tell me what my name is. You see, a test 
is a difficult experience through which a person's true values, commitments, and beliefs are revealed. Listen to the way James begins his letter in James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's a great opening to a letter, huh? But, Paul, but, but James, I'm sorry, knew the reality of life as a Christ follower, that we will experience tests, just like Paul. He understood that tests are par for the course. Notice James doesn't say if you encounter trials. He said when you encounter them. Some of you are experiencing some really hard tests right about now. You might feel like you're at the 20-mile marker. Don't give in to the temptation to give up. Those last six miles are going to require intense concentration. Don't let the enemy rob you of the joy of crossing that finish line. Press on, because the scripture repeats itself time and time again. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't lose heart. Stay connected. Pray unceasingly. Stay calibrated. Preach boldly. Stay concentrated. Hope continually. And then number four was stay compassionate. Give selflessly. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Now, suffice it to say that if I preach on a passage more often than not, I'm going to get tested in that very area. What I didn't tell you last week is that just a few days prior to preaching this point last week on giving selflessly, I had the opportunity to do just that. And I did it, but I whined and complained about it instead of doing it joyfully. Well, to make a long story short, the stay compassionate and give selflessly test didn't seem so great right then in my life. I wasn't counting it all joy, to say the least. I was struggling to get a passing grade. How about you? How are you doing with this test, this COVID-19 test? You may not be taking a medical test, but God is surely giving you a spiritual one. In his fantastic book, The Life You Always Wanted, again, author John Ortberg points out that the word test became an important word in the Old Testament, and the way it is used reveals something of how endurance actually develops. Number one, it is only used in reference to the people of God, never to heathen nations. And number two, it is only applied to people of faith, never to the ungodly. Testing, he says, is reserved for those in a covenant relationship with God. Even though it is painful, testing is an act of love. Abraham underwent this kind of testing when God asked him to give up everything in his life and leave his familiar surroundings for the sake of a promise, and he did it. 
God asked him to be circumcised, and he did. God told him that he and his wife would have a son, even though their combined ages equaled 190 years. He and Sarah laughed, but then responded in obedience. And after Isaac was born, God asked Abraham one more thing. After initially asking him to give up everything for the sake of a promise, he then asks Abraham to give up the promise. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, Lord. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. One author says, take this child, as Frederick Beekner so wonderfully puts it, born in a geriatric ward for which Medicare picked up the tab, this child named Isaac, which means laughter. Abraham and Sarah laughed at first because they didn't believe. They laughed at the sheer impossibility of it. They laughed because they were told they would have a son when they had reached an age where they didn't even dare buy green bananas anymore. After the child was born, they laughed again because they did believe. They laughed that when Sarah went to Walmart, she was the only shopper to buy both Pampers and Depends. They laughed that both parents and baby had to eat the same strained vegetables because nobody in the whole family had a single tooth. But now God is asking Abraham the inconceivable. And Abraham's not laughing anymore. The laughter is nowhere to be found. Yet what was Abraham's response? Here I am. Which is another way of saying, I'm available. I'm at your service. I want to tell you that this giving selflessly thing is rarely easy, my friends, and, and sometimes it's just plain painful. Whether it involves contributing to the needs of others financially, physically, or spiritually, or making yourself available to do the hardest thing that you've ever been asked to do in your entire life, we must guard against growing weary. After years of faithful service, we may experience little of what seems like the Lord's blessing. Some people don't experience that blessing well into their ministry. The work sometimes takes a huge toll, and the enemy surely takes his. But friends, that is where, as believers in Christ, we need to do the fifth thing, and that is to stay confident, and trust God ruthlessly. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul, writing from prison, isolated from church, isolated from most of his friends, understood that others may look at the suffering that he experienced in his life on their behalf and begin to lose heart themselves. 
Yet his selfless concern for them motivated him to encourage them to persevere. His sufferings, though many, should not discourage them, he said, but actually because for them to be blessed. The fact that people had come to faith in Christ and experienced salvation was worth all of his suffering. And his prayer was that God would empower them and strengthen them inwardly. And that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. You can see that in Ephesians 3.16. Through faith. And he trusted that God would use everything he suffered for the salvation of someone. And that to him, that was worth it. And later he would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, and that is why I am suffering here in prison. But I'm not ashamed of it. For I know the one whom I trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Do you hear those words? For I know the one in whom I trust, and I'm sure that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until the day of his return. And that is why I get so ramped up when I read about and see pictures of Christians today who are demanding their rights, flat out defying what Scripture teaches us to do, which is to fulfill our responsibility to have the attitude of Christ Jesus who humbled himself and gave up his rights and privileges as God Almighty and became a bondservant to all. Obedient, mind you, to the point of death on a cross. And that was for you and for me. You see, we have to remember that the real battle is not against flesh and blood, my friends, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Last week, the letter that I read uh, from a friend of mine that was on the mission field reflects those trials and tests that come in the midst of the spiritual battle for the heart. And you can see them kind of outlined in Psalm 11. In Psalm 11, there's just three things here in Psalm 11 that are pretty clear. Number one, the psalmist says, refuse to flee. Verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, and they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Refuse to flee, he says. The psalmist also says, secondly, rest in the faith in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids tests the sons of man. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. So refuse to flee, rest in your faith, and then remember your future in verse 7. For the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness and the upright will behold his face. Look at that psalm a little deeper this week. Meditate on it. See what applies to the things that you're experiencing right now. Refuse to flee. Rest in the faith. Remember your future. 
And then the sixth way that the New Testament says that we cannot lose heart is to stay composed. Stay composed, minister relentlessly. Minister relentlessly. Look at what it says in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how we ought to follow our example. You ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working day and night that we would not be a burden to any of you. For we, even when we were with you, he continues, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary of doing good. Last week I quoted an author who said that many times our loss of heart is not due to spiritual weariness but spiritual laziness. We become weary from doing nothing rather than from doing good and that was exactly the case with some of the people in the Thessalonian church. They were just waiting around for Christ to come. They were biding their time. They were becoming busybodies. They were leading undisciplined lives, doing no work. And they were doing just the opposite of what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58 tells us to be. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So let me ask you, where are you in light of all of this? You have a choice, friends. Are you doing anything or going anywhere for Christ? Or are you content to simply stay home, eat food, and watch movies, allowing your spiritual gifts to atrophy and your minds to get dull and your wills to get weak and your dreams of doing something great for God someday, just to die. What are you going to do after these mandates get lifted, for example? Now, I know a lot of you are fully engaged in the work, even now. I know you are. I see the things that are going on all around. But there are some of you that are feeling a little ding right now in your spirit. You've been hit by what the Word says. Truth be known, some of you who are saying how much you miss being at church, the building, the gathering, right now, I got to tell you, some of you people that are saying that, we're having a hard time getting yourself to the gathered assembly on a steady basis before this COVID-19 crisis, never mind being fully engaged in the vision God has for your life. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, Russ, you're a bit testy today, aren't you? But hey, my friend, if the shoe doesn't fit, then as Tony Evans says, he says, just let it pass by you. Just let it pass. But if it does fit, then my question for you is simple. What are you going to do about it? I'll tell you what the thing is that you can't do. You can't give in to the devil and lose heart. 
The thing you must do is seek the Lord and ask him to give you a renewed strength. Isaiah 40, very familiar passage, beginning in verse 29. Isaiah writes, he gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Let me encourage you, live the words of verse 31. One line at a time. Sometimes we soar, mount up with wings like eagles. Sometimes we run. And sometimes all we can do is walk. Well, it could be due to doubt or to pain or fatigue or failure. But God will give you the strength to keep on walking. They will walk and not become weary. We can walk and not become weary. In the words of a very astute writer, all we can do is say, God, I'll hang on. I don't seem too fruitful or productive right now. And I don't feel very triumphant right now. But I'm not going to let go of you. I will obey you and I will just keep on walking. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Because Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He felt it every bit as much. Actually, he felt it way more than we do. Let these words settle into your heart by one author. When it came time to take the road to Calvary, Jesus wasn't soaring. When the cross was placed on his bruised and bleeding back, he wasn't running. He walked. He was a young man, but he stumbled and he fell that day. Multiple times. All he could do was get back up and walk some more. And sometimes, my friends, walking is all we can do. But in those times, walking is enough. Maybe it is when life is the hardest, when we want so badly to quit, but we say to God, I won't quit. I'll just keep putting one foot in front of the other. I'll take up my cross. I'll follow Jesus even on this road. And maybe God prizes our walking even more than our soaring and our running. So the New Testament's final exhortation about not losing heart is this. Stay committed. Endure faithfully. And as you can guess, it comes right out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 12 and verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In a talk given at a leadership summit many years ago now, the speaker described a book he read which he said redefined physical endurance for him. It was entitled The Ultra Marathon Man. It was about a guy who decides to see how far he could run. 
He had been a runner in high school and now he was older and so he signed up for some 5Ks and they almost killed him. But eventually he got to where he could run a 5K and then he got to where he could run a 10K and soon he signed up for a full marathon. And again, it was very ugly, his first marathon, but he, would wound, but he wound up training and able to do it. And then he found an event called the Western States 100. What do you think the 100 represents? You got it, 100 miles. To run in the Western States 100-mile run, you first have to prove that you were likely able to do it, so you had to run 50 miles in less than nine hours. And this, again, almost killed this guy. But he eventually finished that qualifying run, and then he entered the Western 100-mile race. And the description of what he had to do to finish that race, the speaker said, was worth the price of the whole book. Now, he wasn't done pushing the limits yet. He learned of a 200-mile relay race where every five and a half miles, a new team member would take the baton. And the idea came to him, what if I entered that race solo? Like, do no handoffs of the baton. I just run 200 miles. And everyone thought, you gotta be kidding me. Well, long story short, he entered the race, and it was very ugly, but he finished the 200-mile run. A final challenge captured on the final pages of that book, and I'm going to give it to you straight. The guy signs up for another one of these 200-mile relays, but he's not going to hand the baton to anyone. He's going to do all 200 miles, and then he timed it so that upon the completion of the 200-mile run, he would walk over a few steps and begin a full marathon. Now, you can question this guy's brain power, but he's a runner. Reading this book would simply redefine physical endurance for any one of us. But my friends, what we've been talking about these last two weeks is another kind of marathon race. It's the Christian race. The race to carry out the calling of God on your life and mine to follow Christ and to not lose heart. And that's no sprint, that's a marathon. Paul once said, you've got to run this race in such a way as to win. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you've got to run in such a way as not without aim. Let me ask you, are you running the Christian race to win it? Are you running in such a way as not without aim? How do you think it's going to be done? Well, by looking to the one true ultra-marathon man, Jesus the Christ, the one whose life redefined not only physical but spiritual endurance as well. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 to 3, you and I know these verses very well. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, to wrap this up, my son Aaron finally did finish that marathon. Hurt knee and all. He didn't finish first. He didn't finish last. But he came in somewhere in the middle. And he limped across that finish line. But he finished the race. And as his father, I could not have been more proud and I could not have had more joy. Well, someday, friends, you and I will stand before our Heavenly Father. We will have run the race. We will have fought the good fight. We will have finished our course. And we may not be first. And we may not be last. We may be somewhere in the middle of the pack from our limited human perspective. But the fact is, my friends, if we stay connected and pray unceasingly, if we stay calibrated and preach boldly, if we stay concentrated and hope continually, if we stay compassionate and give selflessly, if we stay confident and trust ruthlessly, if we stay composed and minister relentlessly and stay committed and endure faithfully, we will finish. And we will look into the eyes of Jesus, the greatest finisher who ever lived, and he will say, well done. Well done. Your father couldn't be more proud. He couldn't be more full of joy. Welcome home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we long to hear those words spoken by Jesus. Well done. And I think in our minds we have some idea of what that is supposed to look like from an American perspective. Oh, our Father, we need your grace and we need your mercy and we need your Holy Spirit to give us the real picture of what finishing well looks like. Let us not be deceived and let us not grow weary for in due time we will reap and we will hopefully hear those words from you. Enter into the joy of your master. This is my desire, Lord God, for my life and for every life that is listening to this message right now. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus and run to him. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.